And what's underlying that is this notion that equality can only be imagined as subjugation, right? That equality is imagined as as Black rule, as non-white power over and, and white oppression. And this is really a problem. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Uh, We are back up with another excellent discussion and a really top-notch guest. Uh, We're really fortunate to have someone of the caliber of Dr. Juliette Hooker take her time to come and and discuss her excellent new book, Black Grief, White Grievance, uh, with us. Um, It's, you know, I'm really trying to trim these intros down You know, I am a working professor, and uh, perhaps one of the things um, people in my line of work are known for is talking too much. Um, So I always like to try to set up and characterize the nature of the discussion. But um, in this case, again, since we're able to hear directly from Dr. Hooker about um, this recent book she's written and expand upon some of the really important ideas and concepts and historical arcs that are explored in the text, um, I think it's best to just uh, take a moment to briefly introduce Dr. Hooker to you and tell you a little bit about her background, um, and then expeditiously just get into the conversation. And I think all of the things I enjoyed about the book and why I think the book is so important uh, really come out in our discussion, as does a lot of the crucial and valuable insights from Dr. Hooker uh, come out in her Um, responses and discussions on some of the topics that come up in our conversation. But again, before we get into that, I do want to take just a moment to introduce uh, Professor Juliet Hooker just a little bit more formally. Uh, She is Professor of Political Science at Brown University. Uh, She's a political theorist that specializes in racial justice, Latin American political thought, black political thought, and Afro-descendant and indigenous politics in Latin America. Before coming to Brown, she had worked as a faculty member at the University of Texas, Austin. And before writing the excellent book we'll be discussing today, she's the author of several other books, including Race and the Politics of Solidarity, published by Oxford in 2009, uh, as well as Theorizing Race in the Americas, Douglas, Sarimento, Dubois, and Vescancelos. I'm not sure if I'm saying that last name correctly, but that book was also published by Oxford in 2017, uh, and she was the editor of a volume entitled Black and Indigenous Resistance in the Americas from Multiculturalism to Racist Backlash, published by Lexington Books in 2020. So as you can see, um, Dr. Hooker is a phenomenally accomplished scholar. I should also note that several of her books won very prestigious awards um, with the American Political Science Association, including the 2018 Ralph Bunch Book Award for the Best Work in Ethnic and Cultural Pluralism, as well as the 2018 Best Book Award um, for books on race, ethnicity, and politics, um, as again, part of the American Political Science Association. So, I mean, these are really major league uh, accomplishments. And um, so, as, as you know, all is a way to say, 
why I feel so honored and privileged to have an opportunity to read um, Professor Hooker's books and to also have this wonderful chance to speak with her and, and explore some of the concepts she uh, unpacks in the book with her in a little bit more detail. And I think probably one of the big takeaways from this conversation is that um, Professor Hooker is really exploring, I think, what are some of the most essential components of democracy in America, but you could also argue democracy across the world in um, various different ways, uh, in that this is a book that you should definitely pick up and check out. Um, of course, it is available at all major book distributors, as well as directly from the publisher, Princeton University Press. As always, thank you so much for listening and your support for the show. Um, you know, it goes without saying, if you, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please pass it on to your friends, uh, family, coworkers, whoever, anyone you think that's interesting. If you haven't subscribed to the Substack site yet, please think about doing that. It would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Okay, Dr. Juliet Hooker, thank you so much for joining us here on the Interesting Times podcast. Thank you for having me. It is really such an honor to have you on the show. Um, not to embarrass you or anything, but you're just an extremely accomplished scholar. And so this is uh, quite humbling for me to even uh, have the opportunity to speak with you and explore um, the main topic of today, your um, recently released excellent book entitled Black Grief, White Grievance. And we just had a brief chat before we started rolling here. And I was mentioning to you, I just, I just was really moved in many ways, you know, in terms of my own academic work, but also just as someone who grew up in America. And um, yeah, it just speaks to so many things. So I'm really excited to kind of dig into this. So I, th I always like when I uh, have someone on who's written, written a book to kind of just start with, uh, you know, this deceptively simple question of um, how the project came about. And of, of course, I think there's, you know, a, a very kind of um, uh, brief answer to that question. There's like a broad answer to that question, a super broad way to answer the question. So you can take it however you'd like um, or in multiple ways. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. So I um, started writing the first piece that would become um, a part of Black Grief, White Grievance in actually in um, 2016. And it was after the Ferguson protests. Um, and, you know, like many of us, I was watching, you know, the, the reaction of folks who were demanding justice for Mike Brown, and then also the militarized response to those protests, as well as the people who were criticizing the protesters for how they were showing their anger and their pain. And this led me to start thinking about you know, the ways in which Black protest is constrained and limited. And if you don't present your grievances in just the right way, right, um, mm. they can't be heard. And, and so I was working on this in, in 2016. And then, of course, the 2016 election happened and, and presidential campaign in which you had this um, racist, sexist, anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from 
the uh, the Trump campaign and this real mobilization around this this sense of white grievance and of racial resentment that, of course, had been building during uh, the Obama presidency and seemed to really crystallize in that moment. And so what happened was that I started to think, oh, we can't think about these two things separately. There are two ways in which people are mobilizing around very different type of losses. Um, one is, of course, a very material, profound, you know, loss of a child, of a loved one, um, to police violence. And then in the other, it's these anticipatory losses, right? These, these um, sense of a future displacement in a changing country. And, um, and so that's when I started to think, oh, there's, there's a way in which I have to try to make sense of this role that loss is playing in politics and the way in which people are mobilizing around it. And so I started working on, on the book. And then of course, you know, things kept, um, kept happening. There was a, the pandemic, there was the, mm. um, the racial justice protests of 2020 after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, and that sort of extraordinary moment that seemed to, to suggest we we're going to have a real um, racial reckoning in the United States and, and followed by, a, a, you know, January 6th, capital insurrection right and mm. and and this wave of, of backlash that we now find ourselves in so really um you know i was thinking about some of these these issues and then you know as i kept formulating the framework of the book and the you know the the, the sort of theoretical questions that i was interested in these political developments kept happening that seemed to reinforce that, that, yeah, there was something that was really important about political loss and how people were mobilizing around it that, um, that I needed to, to try to make sense of. Right. No. And, and, and that really does come through um, so poignantly and, and informatively, illuminatingly is, I don't know if that's even a word, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use it <laughs> um, in an illuminating fashion, maybe I'll say um, this interplay of these, you know, historical, theoretical kind of interplay of, of um, grief and grievance and black grief and the experience of grief in, in a host of fronts and notions about how that should be um, or expectations within the dominant white discourse about how that should be expressed and um, also the, you know, um, the counterpart um, or, or other experience of white grievance. And, and, you, and we'll talk a little bit more, hopefully, um, in a bit about this notion of, a, you know, anticipated loss and this sense of in, in what that drives and tying that into um, these events that you listed, um, you know, and, and it, it's almost to hear it recounted in, in that way. It just really um, still, uh, though one should never be shocked at the odd and, and you know, sometimes horrific turns the politics can take. Um, it still is really um, gripping to just think about that that arc from 2016 into January 6th, if we want to kind of bookend it that way and everything that came in between. So in terms of, you know, some of the framing of the book and you, and you got at it um, in your, you know, your response you just gave, um, I really like the notion of this idea of the politics of loss. And, and, you know, and it's in some ways, particularly for an American audience, I think is an important motif because um, broadly speaking, as American uh, you know, American popular culture or dominant culture, what have you, is is often framed around 
um, this notion of progress. And, you mm-hmm. know, if we want to take kind of the, the Trump, you know, everyone's going to get so tired of winning and, win, you know, the word winning and progress and, and, and very li- rarely do people focus on this notion of loss. And, and I like the idea of a politics of loss. And one aspect I, I, on top of that is, is this, you know, notion of loss. Um, and, and you alluded to it in your response as well as a, both a kind of qualitative or emotional experience, but as a, also a material one. And I think, that's something the book really helps develop that for me stood out was um, very often, you know, we, we divide the world into these kind of abstract theoretical plane um, and then this material rote kind of corporeal plane and loss is really a mechanism to demonstrate how those two planes are always in conversation. So I just wanted to maybe ask you about this notion of loss and this idea of it being both a qualitative emotional experience and a material one. Absolutely. So, um, so first, I think it's important to note that, you know, um, there, of course, we've all experienced loss, that loss is a universal human experience, right? We've all, you know, um, Mm. lost at a game, we've all, um, you know, lost a loved one, right there, that, Mm. you know, that, that, that losses is, is something that we all experience. But, the, the subset of loss that I'm talking about in the book, if you will, is political loss, which I, um, you know, I, I talk about it as, of course, the most obvious form of political loss is, is when you lose an electoral contest, your uh, preferred candidate does not win or you lose a policy debate. But there's also loss that comes from uh, state action or inaction, right? So, so if this state fails to, you know, regulate, let's say, I don't know, um, some kind of unsafe practice and there is um, harm as a result or in cases where there's bad policies that end up hurting people. Um, and, um, and as well, I think there's a category of political loss that comes when there's a suffering that is the result of these collective arrangements in society that mm. shape people's experiences. So one of the examples that I write in the, about in the book is um, W.B. Du Bois and the death of his son as a young child, which is a really, you know, key moment in his intellectual development. And, and his son dies from diphtheria, for which there was already a vaccine at the time, but he's living in racially segregated Atlanta in the early 20th century, um, late 19th, early 20th century. And he's not able to get adequate medical care. And so his son dies. And so of course, this is a a personal loss, but it's also political because it's because of the conditions around him, right? The, the racism, Mm. you know, the way in which, as he would say, the world is partitioned that, that his, his son isn't able to survive, even though it's not an example of, let's say a lynching, right? A, a, A violent killing, yet he still dies because of racism. So these are some of the ways in which I think about what makes a loss political. And, mm. um, and in some cases also losses become political because people mobilize around them because we don't necessarily immediately recognize or respond to the losses of, of marginalized or oppressed groups, right? We don't, they're not as, as attended to. And so People have to mobilize around those losses to make them visible. And that's another way in which um, something becomes a political loss. 
And then the, you know, the, the distinction that you were alluding to, which I, um, which I also talk about in, in Black Reef White Grievance is this idea of symbolic and material loss. And when you look at the way in which people have analyzed, for example, um, white grievance, what I call white grievance, what, you know, others might call the, the rise in racial resentments among some sectors of U.S. whiteness, um, a sense of victimization, that often people say this is the result of economic precarity, right? It's the result of declining economic conditions. It's, you know, it's the white working class that's feeling displaced. But what I'm, one of the things that I argue in the book is that actually it's often symbolic losses that people seem the most mobilized by, the most aggrieved by. And so it's, right. you know, it's things that would seem like they, you know, like why, why do people care about, for example, if you take down a Confederate statue or why do you care if, if, you know, um, Disney casts up, um, you know, a black girl as mm. the little mermaid, you know, um, but people become. <laughs> blew my mind by the way. Uh, yeah. The, the, that whole, I mean, I've, I've lived in East Asia for 15 years, so I have a, a, maybe some distance and I, I took my son to see that movie. And I remember I was telling my wife who's Korean uh, about this and I, I'm not joking. It was like a very, almost like a comedy bit. She didn't get it. I was like, yeah, there's some controversy. And she's like, why, what? It's a mermaid. Like she really couldn't understand that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it was, it, it worked its way into our household. And my wife, you know, it was not that Korea is a perfect place, but in this context, she just didn't get it at all. Um, how she just was like, what do you mean? And I was like, yeah, that, uh, yeah, it, uh, maybe you have to grow up in the messed up place that is the United States to, to understand even how that's possible, but I'm sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. Because right, that's, that's, that's why it's such a good example because it's so absurd, right? It's a it's a mermaid. They're not right. We, mermaids aren't don't have right. a racial identity that we you know, are. I can't help but laugh. People, I mean, right? Oh. Right. Yeah. Um, Please. Why? So, it's just insane. But um, so, but yeah. So go ahead, please. Sorry. Yeah. No. So for me, I think that's that's. Um, a really important thing to pay attention to, right? That that it's not simply, let's say, these material economic conditions that are driving racial resentment or are driving um, a sense of, of uh, white victimhood for some people. It's often these symbolic changes, these symbolic losses that they're responding to. And I think in order to, to really understand why something like a multiracial casting might become a sign of, 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 you know, wokeness gone wrong that for some that we, we really need to, to have this, um, this distinction or this sense of, of, you know, symbolic loss in addition to material loss is important for trying to make sense of those moments. No, that's uh, yeah. That's really um, uh, such an important insight, and and one that is obviously um, central to the arguments and and the ideas you explore in the book. But I think for anyone trying to understand politics even more broadly um, outside of the scope of the book, like the, this, the importance of symbolism. Uh, I I remember reading in grad school um, uh, like a book by Murray Edelman or something about symbolic 
uses of politics. And I remember being, you know, and that really stuck with me is how much, you know, symbolism and I, and I you know, I teach political economy and my course on nationalism. And I, I really have the students kind of meditate on how weird flags are, you know, mm-hmm. as much as like arguing about the proper race of a, of a, of a mermaid is a strange. I really try to say, say step back and like flags are really strange. And I always use the example of like, if I stood, you know, I'm teaching in Japan. And I said, if I stood before you in, with a white sheet and I burned it, you would just think, you know, Professor Kevin's gone a bit mad, um, maybe not incorrectly so. And But if I just scribbled like a, a red circle on that white sheet and then burned it, it is like magically transformed mm-hmm. into this like extreme political statement just by drawing a red circle. Um, so I, I really think that, that and I think how that ties into what and I think that point about that kind of white grievance politics, it, it very much is as much um, symbols as like. The, the factory moving out or, or these sorts of quite real, but, but maybe right. overstated in terms of explaining what's, what's afoot. And you really home in on that in the book with the discussion. And I like really the kind of um, uh, motif and, and following of this notion of these like really rich, you know, uh, upper middle class or upper class, like white guys from, I believe it was, you know, Memphis who like mm-hmm. chartered a plane to like January 6th. And yeah. And that the, 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 the demographic, demographic profile of the January 6th rioters or insurrectionists were very much hued um, white upper middle class um, as more than the person from a, a down and out mill town in Ohio. And I mean, that's something that, you know, the, the book I think really speaks to is that narrative of everything in the world is explained by the down and out mill town in Ohio. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but I think it's this interesting kind of uh, imaginary geography that's taken hold. Um, and, and, and the book, I think, really um, explores that in, in important ways. Um, one, and I think this, your your response really uh, takes us towards something I, I also wanted to um, ask you about, and it, it really stood out for me from the book, uh, maybe particularly so as, as someone who um, uh, is a political economist uh, by trade and, and this idea of distribution of uh, loss in the distribution of democratic labor. I mean, I I love that as a concept. I mean, it just, yeah, that because, I, you know, I guess a, a central aspect of political economy is this notion of distribution mm-hmm. um, and to take that 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 base concept of distribution and, and to filter that into this notion of loss and democratic labor. I, I, I really I'm not just being effusive because I'm, I'm speaking with you. I was like, wow, that is brilliant. Um, what a great way to think about that. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that loss and the distribution of democratic labor. Absolutely. So one of the key insights of the book is that in democracy, right, everybody's supposed to lose at some point. Um, so if you're a democratic citizen, you can't win all the time because that's the nature of democratic politics, right? That there's supposed to be rotation that some people will win, but it can't be, it's not supposed to be the same people all the time. And thinking about this, which is a, you know, an idea that I take from Danielle Allen's work. One of the things that I, um, you know, that I think about in the book is the way in which this labor of losing, so to speak, of, of, of being a mm. good loser in democracy has been unevenly distributed in the United States, that um, Black people as a group have been expected to to be um, good losers, right? To, um, right, to peacefully accept discrimination and and yet to protest in only the most civil and acceptable ways. Whereas 
as a group in general, whites have been more insulated from loss, have not had to accept loss because they have been the dominant group economically, politically, socially. And so the, the, you know, this notion of the distribution of loss comes up because when we start to think about what that means is, you know, it wasn't really until the 1960s as a, as a matter of, of law, right, that you actually had supposedly equal citizenship in the United States where um, African-Americans mm. were finally able to, to exercise the right to vote in, in the South. But, you know, we still have all of these ways in which the interests of non-whites, of Black people, um, are still not equally represented. And of course, we all know the, the, the aggressive ways in which minorities are still kept from exercising political power through, you know, racial gerrymandering, you know, voter ID, onerous voter ID requirements, you know, all of the, the, the tactics that we're, we're aware of. But even the, you know, the, the more empirical analyses of who wins policy debates um, have shown that it is generally um, white preferences that predominate. And so part of what I'm trying to, to say in the book is that what this has done is that it has created an expectation among most white people that their preferences will prevail, right? That they will be at the center of the political life of the country. And so what this has meant is that it has become very difficult to accept flaws because they haven't had to do it as much. And, and also to accept the idea that there might be, they might have to share in political decision-making and political rule with non-whites. I mean, I think we saw this very clearly with the, the folks who were extremely radicalized by the election of Barack Obama, right? By the idea that there was a black president, even though this was one office holder in, you know, um, and he was a, a pretty mainstream Democrat. And yet this was radicalizing for many people um, who were, you know, for whom this meant, you know, this this moment of, of displacement. And so I think what I mean by thinking about this idea of, of the distribution of loss is to say, as long as we continue to have this pattern where some people expect not to lose or, or see it as illegitimate when they do lose, we won't have a full democracy. And I think we still see that today. If you think about the rhetoric around the 2020 election, when when folks who were arguing that there was fraud or or other irregularities would routinely point to, for example, um, voting in college towns or voting by immigrants or voting in large urban areas. And it's this idea, right, right that the votes of some people just should not matter as much, that victories won right. by coalitions that include certain voters just aren't as legitimate as those that are based on the votes of what Sarah Palin used to call real Americans, right? Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is is such a loaded phrase that that carries um, so much with, with it, right? That idea of, of real Americans. And and on that notion, I mean, the, you know, maybe jumping off the mention of Sarah Palin and kind of the 
political, social, historical forces. I shudder. I I actually just realized I'm. I don't know. Thinking that Sarah Palin represents historical forces. That's a that's a weird. um, (laughs) But she. I mean, she does. She or at least she she embodies certain historical forces. Um and 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 you know um along with many many others is. You know, that a lot of your arguments, I think one of the things that really comes out in the book um, is to the extent that this is a critique of a, of a certain white outlook or, or white perspective that um, pervades American society. I mean, I think it really homes in on what, you know, we would broadly maybe call center left or even left white outlook, right? That in in some sense, I mean, there's a large portion of the white population in the United States who feels that, you know, as you were kind of alluding to that, uh, that black members of society shouldn't have a voice and that, you know, they should basically be happy that they're allowed to live in America. I mean, to be quite, you know, that's a very prevailing view. And, but even amongst people who would, would consider themselves having more, you know, quote unquote, tolerant or open-mindedness are still very, often unable when it comes down to to accept loss. And you you cite um, a lot of the um, really important writing and speeches of Martin Luther King, who who mm-hmm. saw foresaw this pretty clearly in that um, that the, that even with that, there's a kind of a limit. And all I was, you know, had this in my notes for later, but I think it fits in here because one thing that came to mind reading your book, and it's a phrase that kind of always comes out in what I would call kind of, for lack of a better term, center left, um, mainstream white discourse um, broadly is in the wake of the murder of George Floyd or the murder of Michael Brown, all of these events, murder of Breonna Taylor and so forth. Is this this weird, I don't know, weird is the right word, this you know, mantra, let's have a conversation about race. And I always wonder, like, because it really is like in some ways i think it get to me at least on my own my own view is that it gets to, it's the heart of what you're getting at because that is actually if i think about what i think about a conversation like two people sitting down if i'm going to have a you know we're having a conversation i'm not going to make demands of you you're not probably going to make demands of me right mm-hmm. and i think that is it's in some ways creating a space this idea of let's have a conversation where it's like nobody's going to have to ask anybody for anything and ie whites being in a dominant position um are not going to be asked for anything material or specific mm-hmm. and so i i really thought about that phrase cuz i've always like well, it always comes out let's have a conversation and i'm not trying i know i'm not trying to um denigrate anybody who suggests that and i'm sure they have you know good intentions or or what have you but i think your book helps us understand why even that kind of center left white outlook is often very limited and limiting in terms of what potentialities could come out of this imagined conversation and how it frames it in a way of two parties coming from equal footing which I think anybody with a, a scant understanding of American history or even present day U.S. society knows that that's not true as well. So it's like I'm conjuring like this fantasy world where we're all just going to sit down and we're all in this coming from the same kind of position. And then we can just have a conversation. And, you know, there's fair grievances that white people have and fair grievances that black people have. And we can just work this out. And that is a, a really, really almost um, uh, infantile view of the situation. Yeah, no, you know, I think one of the the things that I argue in, in the book is that, of course, you know, white grievance is not new and it um, we've seen it at different moments. And I think it's, it, you know, I, I draw on Dr. King um, and his analysis in the in the late 60s, right after right the civil rights victories 
And he's beginning to see the hardening of white resistance. And he says, you know, people have taken the mere um, passage of the law, which is just the beginning as the achievement of equality. And, and he right. says that the costs up to this point have been negligible, both materially and psychologically, right? That this was the easiest thing to do. And that now that essentially greater transformation is required, that even previous allies will fall away. And he's seeing that happen in this, in this moment. And I think that this is really important to try to grapple with because this is where the distinction between material and symbolic loss, I think, is, is, is helpful once again, because, I, you know, I think for a lot of folks who see themselves as, as liberal or progressive, they're much more comfortable, let's say, with, with symbolic loss, right? They don't care about the Confederate statue. They're like, yes, let's take it down, you know, um, and, um, and they'll have the Black Lives Matter signs in their homes, et cetera. But when it comes to things like, okay, if we have to reorganize access to education to make it more equitable, and that might mean that their children will face a more competition for, you know, getting into the, the colleges that they, they would like them to go to or the schools that they want them to attend, I think it becomes a much more difficult, as you said, quote unquote, conversation. Right. Um, right. And uh, and I think that that, you know, even some of the debates around um, cancel culture um, show some of the limits of the, of, you know, the of this as well, because one of the things that I think there are plenty of critiques that you made of social media and, and the ways in which, let's say, it's it's, it's um, degraded or or. Um, political conversation. But one of the things that has also done is democratized it, right? So on um, Twitter, um, before it became X, right, you know, any person could critique a New York Times journalist or could critique the New York Times or could point out that a politician had said something that was absolutely problematic. And it could be taken up by thousands of people, none of whom had to be themselves prominent public figures for it to then become something that became a conversation. And so I think when you see some of these panics around, oh, pe- you know, cancel culture, which I think are shared actually by a lot of, of liberals, a lot of progressives and, and, and people right, you know, in the right wing mm. is this fear of, of, oh my God, you know, I'm being held accountable by these people, you know, who are they to, to try to hold me accountable for my views or for, for the things that I've, I've said. And so I think it is absolutely the case that, yes, we have folks who are very clearly and openly animated by racial resentment, by racial hostility um, among whites, but there's also folks who would consider themselves more liberal or oppressive who are precisely those whom King would have identified as the people who who are able perhaps to accept symbolic loss, but are going to have a much more difficult time when it comes to the more profound transformations required for true equality. Mm, right. And, you know, um, it, it may be somewhat of a, a weird um, 
reference back to shoehorn in here, but in hearing all of this, I, I you know, one, uh, I, I'm kind of have just a, a passing kind of almost hobbyist interest in, in the, um, in Rousseau and Rousseau's thought. And it's kind of just a thing I do on the side. I don't, I'm not like a Rousseau scholar, so I don't, I don't want to upset any Rousseau scholars out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, um, uh, you know, in in his letter on the um, on the arts to D'Alembert, uh, he had this. You know, he's talking about one. Of, you know, he's criticizing drama as a dramatist. I mean, it's one of the many interesting uh, enigmas of Rousseau. He's he's a dramatic writer. You know, he writes dramas, but is criticizing their their toxic effects. And that aside, one of the interesting observations he makes is that drama is a way for elites to indulge or feel the the um, redemptive aspect of, of having empathy for another in a kind of um, in a drama in a, in a show um, but never have to pay any actual cost and and that motif kind of really when I was reading about you know kind of how um, the, the kind of lines that are drawn in terms of what sort of in in especially your excellent discussions of dr king's kind of you know um uh, experiences of this not not even just commenting on it but experiencing the loss of white allies as you said and slowly kind of you know peeling off as the demands became um and and i think importantly as you mentioned in the book you know quite legitimate demands um Mm -hmm. these are not like so i i often thought about that like a law is important. I mean, it's not to diminish the importance of the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, um, which are you know been systematically denuded um, as a side point. But that that can be that it has that kind of effect. Like we've done it now. Mm-hmm. The, the law has been fixed, and I've I've you know I participated in that. I've supported that as a white person, and now I. But I've not had like you said. I, I have not had to you know consider costs in terms of where my kids go to school or. Housing arrangements, um, you know that that um, there might be a larger minority or black or Latino population in my neighborhood, and and maybe you know, and if, if that that's much more. <laughs> why that would be upsetting to white people is a whole another story. But you know, even things that like that have these much more direct and material impact on people's lives or um, affirmative action programs that have been extremely beneficial to black businesses in urban areas that demand um, minority-owned business preferences for contracts, all of those things, right? That these are real things that have real effects and do provide real benefits, but are often a kind of a line where it's like, no, that's not what we, <laughs> that's not what I signed on for, you know, um, imagining that and like in, in this notion. And, and I think that really comes out in the book that, you know, everything can't be um, positive sum. That's that's the other mm-hmm. kind of American delusion or, or delusion of political liberalism, I think, very often, right? That there's everything's ultimately, if you think hard enough, everything can be positive sum. And some things uh, are just zero sum, uh, you know, and I, I think that's that's something that the book addresses that that's part of sharing, you know, and that gets back to this notion of sharing the distribution of loss or the distribution mm-hmm. of labor and democracy. Like people have to accept that certain things are to make a whole, a holistic and a, and a better and a more humane democratic society will, does require loss in, in not even in just symbolic ways, but in, in real material ways. And I, I really think that point, and I think that's not in the book to me, it doesn't come across in a, in a, in a, pessimistic way, but actually in an optimistic way that that will actually make things better for everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe there is at the end a positive sum (laughs) outcome, but you have to go through some zero sum reactions or, or policies, I guess. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's two things that I would say about that. One of them is that I absolutely do argue in the book that we need to learn to sit with loss, right? And and this is in some ways a you know a counterintuitive argument um, from the perspective of democratic theory, which tends to talk about democracy as being almost entirely about empowerment, right? So you you exercise right. your citizenship rights and you you participate collectively with other people, and it's this exercise of of sovereignty and development of your political capacity. But I think what that does is it gives us the sense that, you know, that democracy is only about winning, right? Um, mm. And it sets aside the, the fact that it's also about losing. And so, yes, I think when I started presenting some of the ideas in the, in the chapter on, on white grievance, which is the, the first chapter in the book, people would say, well, mm. precisely that point that you made, they would say, well, how can we not frame this as a loss for not as white people having to accept the loss? How can we frame it as a win for everyone? And I would say, well, why are we so uncomfortable with the idea that sometimes we don't win and some wow. losses are legitimate, right? Um, and so, I mean, and, and, you know, and, and we can think about this in not just in terms of race, but think about that, Certainly feminists have made this argument, right, that changing traditional arrangements, you know, around child care and the ways in which we think about gender norms will be actually good for not just women, but also men. Um, But the fact Mm. remains, right, that it does imply, right, that having um, a more equitable family life and, and child care arrangements, right, that have required changes, in how people parent and in in all of these things that you know are very different from a time when when women were expected to to do it all i think there's there's something that um can really be difficult for people about this this notion that yes maybe some losses are legitimate and maybe they are necessary to create the kinds of societies that we want and that's okay Right. And, you know, at the same time, I think I do also say in the book that, uh, you know, having too much of a of a zero sum approach to thinking about loss can really fuel white grievance. Right. Because what I what I say in relation to that is that one problem there is when another group's gains are seen as a loss for your group. Right. So even if it, it's not right, you see someone else, you know, gaining rights or gaining recognition and somehow that is taking something away from you, even if it's not. So, you know, a good example here is is when people were um, responding to the Black Lives Matter protest by saying all lives matter. And it's, you know, of course, nobody was saying that other lives didn't matter. They were saying. Right. Actually, they were trying to, to point out the, the fact that, that people weren't treating Black persons with, with care and concern. Um, but somehow the very idea of saying, right, Black Lives Matter for some felt like a displacement. And so the need to assert that all lives matter. So I think that's, I think that's the, the element of zero-sum thinking that I think is problematic. But I agree with you that one of the arguments in the book is that, you know, to have genuine democracy, to have 
equality, we do need to have distribution of loss, which means that we need to learn to accept legitimate loss. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and just uh, just briefly, uh, you know, what came into my mind um, as I was listening to you speak and thinking about these things um, was uh, one of my favorite lines from uh, a Peter Tosh song. And he has this line that says, everyone is crying out for peace. None of them want justice. And I think that mm. was, you know, somewhat of his critique of this mentality, you know, and, and what Martin Luther King called the, the white liberal, the white moderate, right? That, um, you know, peace is, you know, we just want calm. We just want, mm -hmm. right? And that very much speaks to exactly the motif in the book, but none of them want justice. And I, I thought, you know, um, I, I love Peter Tosh, so, but I, because of, you know, he has such an, an edge to his, his um, music and art. Um, and, and on that note, maybe uh, switching gears a little bit here, because, we, you know, we've, uh, been covering um, some really good ground in terms of the, you know, the white grievance um, part of the, you know, the book's title. And I wanted to, you know, change in the direction, not that they're unconnected and for the ways you've talked about they, they are, but kind of put more, uh, turn our focus a little bit to the black grief um, portion of the title. And, and, and I, if I, you don't mind me reading just a short sentence from the book or even a, a short passage, you know, you, you wrote, there has been insufficient space for black grief because of the imperative to turn activism, um, to turn to activism, to try to remedy racial injustice. And, and that whole line of thinking about um, uh, the obligations that are put on black Americans and, and you often, as you write, mention in the book to save or rectify the, the flaws of, of white democracy in the U S and I just um, would, would uh, ask you to kind of uh, build on that, or if you could, you know, um, develop that idea a little bit more. Of course. Yeah, no, that is um, also a, a central argument of, of the book is, is, is thinking about the ways in which these expectations of, political heroism and sacrifice of African-Americans have been a key element of the ways in which we've thought about how social transformation and how racial progress happens in the United States, right? That it, it, it takes this, this heroic activism by Black folks making their losses visible, spurring moral transformation in white audiences to really have progress towards racial justice. But part of what I, you know, I, I'm trying to, to talk about very much in the book is to say, how do we think about what we're asking when we have those expectations, right? Why do we keep asking people to prove their humanity in order to care about their suffering? Right. And, and this is the, you know, the, if you think about one of the the um, the moments that I write about in the book, the lynching, the murder of Emmett Till, and then the the activism of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, right in in having an open casket funeral and showing the mutilation of her son in order that is credited with having galvanized civil rights movement. But the ways in which we, you know, of course, laud that as a, as a, as a key um, moment of activism, but we don't think enough about the fact that she was grieving, right? That she was mourning the loss of her son and that there's a loss that comes with having to, to not just, right, have to suffer this devastating loss of your child, but then in order to try to gain some justice for your loved one that you've lost, you have to become an activist. And this is a pattern that keeps 
repeating itself. I mean, we see it more recently with the mothers of the movement, right? The the relatives of the victims of police violence who then right become activists to try to 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 create change. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to point out is that we need to also attend to the fact that this move from grief to grievance, this move from, you know, from loss to activism, while, Mm. you know, while it's a way to try to gain justice, it's also a loss and it has costs. And it also, I think, creates obligations for the rest of us not to depend on that labor, right? Going back to the arguments about who does this kind of democratic labor to try to make U.S. democracy live up to its stated ideals. Mm. One of the lines that also really stuck out to me in, in that in discussions in in this vein is um, a, a very kind of dominant narrative um, among even you know uh, left center or progressive um, white elites is this idea that black excellence. Um, it says it took, I'm quoting now black political excellence as peaceful acquiescence to democratic loss, right? And that kind of carries that to how that the the proper expected way in terms of this this kind of um, dominant uh, white American kind of a- outlook is that um, this, you know, it, it needs to be only demonstrated through a very set kind of parameters of what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And and I had uh, a professor from USC a few few months ago on, um, Professor Hajar Yazdiha, and she had written recently a book about the, the misappropriation um, in several cases of and how the legacy of Martin Luther King is misappropriated. And I think that really your discussion here very, very, um, adic- you know, excellently kind of connects with that, right? That, mm-hmm. that, 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 that kind of faux or conjured or imagined memory of who or what, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King was or what he stood for um, is, is then deployed to discipline, to use the Foucauldian term, to discipline, you know, black victims, um, of of injustice to what what the proper response to that injustice shall be. Absolutely, you know, in chapter two in the book is, is which is the chapter in which I look at at precisely this way in which the this romantic narrative of the civil rights movement that has mm. congealed into our official public memory of it is used to discipline contemporary Black activists, right? So that anything right. that that departs from this script of the supposedly, you know, civil, well-dressed protesters that don't make anyone uncomfortable because this is how we remember it, even though, of course, there was enormous contestation. Dr. King was actually not universally appreciated until after he was assassinated, you know, was called an outside agitator. You know, people would say that the um, the civil rights activists were, they would equate them with the Ku Klux Klan, right? They were both radicals and extremists, right? So we have this, we have this sanitized memory of the civil rights movement that, that is often used and weaponized against contemporary protesters to say, look, this is this is the the way in which you will bring about any kind of, of social transformation. And if you depart from it, you are you're delegitimizing your cause. But I think one of the things that that fails to to also note is that even when protesters are nonviolent and civil, that doesn't mean that that the injustices that they're trying to point to will be will be heard, will be legible. Um, and so, and also we get caught up into 
in to policing how people are protesting and that deflects away from actually thinking about what it is that they're trying to bring attention to. Um, you know, one of the, the moments that I write about in the book, there's um, this after the Chauvin trial, right? The police officer who killed George Floyd, that there were these responses by the mayor of Minneapolis and by then Speaker Nancy Pelosi thanking George Floyd for his sacrifice. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, God, it was really cringeworthy. It was. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. and of, you uh, know, and of course, there are many problems with this framing, one of which is, is that Floyd wasn't an activist. He was a, you know, a regular person just trying to go right. about his day who's who's then killed. And but also this idea that we are we're so used to this idea that that black people will be these heroic activists who will sacrifice themselves will be these martyrs that will then through their sacrifice bring about racial progress in the United States that we we will you know that people felt like this was a way to honor this man rather than thinking about how do we make sense of of the the loss of someone's life outside of putting them in this this frame of a, you know a heroic martyr for racial justice Right. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, that, that really, I, I do remember like, I think physically cringing as I read that quotation from Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be too harsh, but that was, at least that was just, yeah. Wow. Um, and, and, she did take it, uh, but, you know, she did take it back after she was criticized for it. But Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, then there was that whole really uncomfortable. I mean, it was just uncomfortable to watch. They're, they're wearing the, the Kenta cloth. And mm-hmm. yeah, there was, a, I, and I mean, people can have their hearts in the right, right place, but it was, yeah, it was very cringeworthy. And, and um, not just in, in aesthetically, but it, it spoke to maybe a, you know, is much, you know, one of those things they were trying to show a certain mentality, but we're actually demonstrating the lack of that mentality. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, that's that's neither it's not that critical. I, I think what what is more critical and and does you know come to my mind in thinking about this is um, how this emphasis and and I think two things can be true. This we are discussing very often. You know, what, what genuine heroism, genuine mm-hmm. um, almost almost you know mystical abilities to willing for for a belief in something greater for a belief for future generations to have opportunities that one generation does not um you know that is true but also the kind of reification of that in terms of the discourse and particularly the white discourse of how this is seen deflects certain aspects and and one thing that came to mind I one of the the greater kind of fortunes I've had in my life is I got to take a course. I went to Mary Washington College in Virginia and um, Dr. James Farmer was uh, a faculty member there. And I, I got to listen to him um, tell his experience of the Freedom Rides and, and, and you know, and it, it is more riveting than anything, just hearing the, his experience of walking off a bus with a, with a almost rabid mob waiting to mm-hmm. potentially murder them, if not beat them to a near lifeless state. And one one thing is I remember sitting there saying, oh, my God, like, the, how do people this is and, and, and all for a cause, you know, not for even anything immediate, but for an idea that uh, simply black people should be able to receive services and other things, um, at, you know, within within the South as anyone else. I mean, that for that basic thing. But what 
you know, and, and I think that needs to be and should be, and I think, you know, that's, that needs to be celebrated and remembered. But mm-hmm. what can get lost is if you just see this as a story of, of Black heroism is the presence of white barbarism. Right. Like right. that, mm-hmm. it, it removes that frame where it's like you're thinking about these, no, uh, you know, admittedly, unbelievably heroic and brave men and women, um, black, some white, and, you know, um, um, on those buses. And you're forgetting about the barbarous mob waiting for them and, and, and about that, that, what that represents in that side of the story. Right. And, and, um, it kind of pushes in, in a, some sort of way, um, into a, a background or almost that it's a kind of null state. Like, yeah, of course there's angry white mobs ready to, you know, kill and murder people who are just trying to, um, go to a, a rest stop. Right. You know, it it gets it it kind of elides that. Well, hold on. No, I mean, this is, you know, this is a big Mm -hmm. part of the story. Uh, And so, you know, and I think it's, again, a a both. And I don't I don't think one need diminish the heroic and and brave actions of those men and women without making sure we understand, because those are not, you know, um, obviously, as we see in in present day politics, those are not dormant or erased forces Mm -hmm. and and, and kind of writing them out of the story or pushing them into kind of background actors um, really negates that aspect of it. Um, So, you know, I I think that that's something that really came out in trying to think how this kind of romanticization really um, weighs in on, on real politics, real discourse, real ways that things occur in the present day, which is, again, uh, one of the things that I find really, uh, amongst many, one of the most important aspects of the book, that this is this is a deep work of political theory and political thought, but it's one that, that effortlessly like, speaks to very um, ongoing and very real aspects of contemporary politics and life in, in the U.S. And I think that's a, that's easier said than done. Um, you know, in, in, in the academic world, we're often, you know, you're often like, oh, you can write the popular book about current events, or you can write your deep theoretical exegesis. And like, I, I mean, quite frankly, I, I think your book is, is both. And, and that is hard to do. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's a big credit to, to the work and what it offers to the discussion. Thank you. I mean, I think one of the, you know, one of the things that I argue in the book that I think is is really important to try to grapple with is that often the concern has been that, you know, Black rioting, Black anger, Black violence is a threat to U.S. democracy, right? Um, but that, in fact, the gravest threat to U.S. democracy is white refusal. It's white grievance. It's this mobilization of white victimhood that leads um, folks to be willing to dispense with democracy if it means equality. And I think, you know, in his time, Dr. King talked about how you had, you know, in his time, right, um, rabid segregationists who would um, dispense with democracy if it meant they had to give up segregation. And I think in the present, we're seeing people who are in the same way are saying, you know, maybe we don't need so much democracy. Maybe you know, we, we are, you know, all the folks who are like, oh, we're a republic, not a democracy, et cetera, et cetera. It's this, right. it's this growing um, attempt to, to really say, no, you know, um, we're okay with authoritarianism as long as it means that our side can prevail. And I think that this is a real threat. And one of the ways in which it is, I think, really at work is be- in, 
in these contemporary discourses of, of, of white grievance is in the way in which you have these kind of apocalyptic visions of anticipatory loss, right? This idea that, mm. um, that there's this kind of displacement that is going to happen because of demographic change. And, and, and it's imagined in these really dystopian ways, right? So, you know, if you think even right, the whole the, white replacement, like the exactly, white replacement theory. Exactly. Yeah. Right. We are, there's this grand conspiracy whereby whites are being literally biologically displaced by non-whites through these blacks immigration policies or, you know, differences in birth rates, et cetera, et cetera. And what's underlying that is this notion that equality can only be imagined as subjugation, right? That equality is imagined as as Black rule, as non-white power over and, and white oppression. And this is really a problem. Yes, yeah, in 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 you, it's. I mean, you made reference to it, and that's um, something that I've become interested in, um, but also quite concerned about is the rise of, um, I guess, quasi serious, like quasi, like they're they're taken somewhat seriously in the discourse. Um, um, you know, I think some of them are even uh, working academics of of this kind of. Uh, shift in in thought leaders um, who ex- espouse this idea of you know democracy being um, flawed, being counter, you know, uh, uh, I guess somewhat counter to um, a prosperous and in you know in, in a kind of the language they would use like a virile like expanding society, and that democracy needs to be curtailed extensively, if not outright mm-hmm. dropped. And, and there are very serious thought leaders who, you know, meet with senators, meet with, you know, Supreme Court justices, like who are like real people in terms of their influence, um, whether or not their, their ideas are despicable to me, but they are very, in, and I think there's a, a lack of appreciation for how much this kind of cadre of, of thinkers have really expanded their reach. Um, you know, we can think of people like J.D. Vance, um, it, you know, into the, as a U.S. senator from Ohio, we can think of, of, of many others who have these people kind of in their circles and, and are quite serious about what they're doing. And, and certainly we can see that in, in the rhetoric and action of, of the Trump campaign. And I, I don't know how um, serious people realize that is. And I, I, I think you do and for obvious reasons. But I, when I say, you know, your modal kind of um, American and particularly modal, like middle class white American or upper middle class white American, who may just be kind of like milk toast, middle of the road, like, they don't realize that this, like, as you said, is going to have a cost for everybody. And I think, you know, there's, this is going back to what we we're discussing earlier, there's a long strain in um, liberal political thought and, you know, even going back to someone who in, in his own way was p- quite progressive, um, John Stuart Mill. Now, it wasn't along racial lines, but he was favoring, you know, more votes for more educated people or people mm-hmm. who had more, quote unquote, intellectual ability, like, you know, weighted voting, like you get 10 votes if you're judged to be smart, I guess. But, you know, I'm sure John Stuart Mill felt he had a way to, to suss that out. But <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. And then so that this isn't this isn't like some alien force to liberalism, you know, mm-hmm. political liberalism as political theory, not liberalism in the American context for our listeners. I, I obviously know you know the difference, but um, for, for listeners have to be always clear to distinguish those two. So, yeah, I mean, this is in some ways an, another 
um, way that these are latent or kind of forces that are always been floating around that um, seem to be kind of coalescing. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true. I mean, and if you you think about the the history of, of Western political thought, right? There's there's been um, a lot of you know the the critique of democracy goes back to the right to the to the ancients and to this idea mm. that right the mob is a problem, right? That that the energies of the mob need to be contained and and that we we can't trust the people to know what is best. And I think that that we're really seeing, you know, real contemporary hearkening to those currents in, um, you know, I, re- I saw recently that anti-abortion um, um, activists reacting to the 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 success of the the referendum in Ohio that did enshrine right the right to to an abortion by saying, you know, um, maybe so much direct democracy is not a good thing. So I think the reaction that, you know, you're seeing in, in, in a lot of corners in the United States now is if you lose an argument, it's not to accept loss, but to say, or to say, oh, maybe I need to rethink what my beliefs or I need to find a, a way to persuade the people who, who I haven't been able to persuade. It's to say, no, I need to change the rules of the game. Right. That there is something wrong with because, again, these these apocalyptic scenarios where the victory by the other side will mean the end of their way of life or that it justifies whatever means are necessary in order to impose their political project. And, and, you know, and ultimately this this is incompatible with democracy. Hmm. And in, incompatible in, in with democracy, and, and I think as you you really put forward in the book, uh, you know, a humane society, a society mm-hmm. of, of you know human flourishing, uh, you know, like um, uh, you know, eudaimonia, eudaimonia uh, as Aristotle would say, right? Um, so uh, you know, I, I've taken already too much of your time, but maybe uh, as a last, um, if if there are, if I ask uh, one, or you know one more question or sure. uh, one more you know ask one more aspect about the book, thanks. Um, is, uh, and, you know, maybe not, I don't want to say like end on a positive note, but maybe looking forward because I, I wouldn't want to leave out that the book has so many excellent um, ideas about where to go from here. It's not just this, you know, focus on how things are so bad and why, and which is an important part of, but I think it builds towards a really interesting perspective on ways forward. And you posit several um, ideas, but the one I wanted to ask you about and really stood out to me um, that you you draw from black thought and particularly black feminist thought um, is this notion of radical refusal because um, you had mentioned you know this this notion of white refusal before and you kind of take that and turn it in an interesting way to think about um, again this idea from uh, um, you know drawing on on uh, the history of black feminist thought. And if you don't mind me, if you don't mind me reading a a short passage and then, you know, having you kind of build on that. Um, And it says, uh, yet it could be argued that a politics centered on refusal has democratic cause because it is turning away from the collective power required to transform institutions. In the case of black politics, however, the problem has not been a lack of investment in democracy so much as the subordination of black freedom to the parasite to to the parasitic shoring up of white democracy. In this sense, refusal becomes an essential check on expectations of unreciprocated democratic labor. 
it also it is also a reminder to look beyond the state. Um, that really stuck with me, and and I think is so um, valuable as a, as a way of thinking about um, this, you know, a politics of refusal and the political components of refusal. And I was wondering um, if you could, you know, speak a little bit more and develop that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, in the one of the things that I I talk about in the book is the the last two chapters are really looking at the ways in which in reaction to these expectations of democratic sacrifice, what are the other models, what are the other ways in which Black thinkers and activists have really tried to respond to their losses in more meaningful ways that refuse that script? And so in chapter three, which is on Ida B. Wells and Harriet Jacobs, I I draw on them as exemplary theorists of loss to talk about the ways in which they're, of course, making appeals for support for abolition and the end of slavery in the case of Jacobs and for awareness of lynching and a repudiation of it and and, and an actual end to lynching and to um, all of these outbursts of white violence in the late 19th and early 20th century in Wells' case when she's also writing about these um, white race riots and massacres. But throughout their work, they do this really important I think they make these really important moves where they they enact certain refusals, right? They don't simply offer up Black suffering and Black pain in the hopes that it will enable white moral transformation. You know, um, they make decisions about what to reveal and what not to reveal. And they also um, pay attention to Black life, right? They pay attention to Black communities and do this work of really trying to, I think, balance grief and grievance that's um that's a form of a refusal right of of saying maybe it's not our job to fix u.s democracy right and 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 what are the other ways in which we can think about how to how to cultivate the the lives of of black people that is not as part of this script of uh um you know sort of heroic or beyond the script of heroic martyrdom and um, and I you know that's something that I really try to sit with in that chapter, then the the fourth chapter on on the ways in which black maternal grief has been so central to black politics and trying to how do we think about the lives of the full humanity of black people beyond this frame of of political heroism that has been the dominant way of thinking about the way in which they should respond to loss. Right. No, and, and I really I really love the 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 motif of refusal and, and the power of, of refusal and and you know the that you know a, a participatory form of non-participation, which might sound like a intellectual, you know, um uh, jargon, but I, I I think that really is kind of what it's getting at. And it and in some ways the the last line of a reminder to look beyond the state really um uh, you know, kind of made me think about um, uh, the the kind of um, writing and and work of Malcolm X, who I think a lot of mm. his um, ideas and 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 um, political outlook really was about 
um, encouraging uh, Black Americans to look beyond the state um, in, in various ways. And, and, you know, and I think, again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. I mean, the state is the state, um, whether mm-hmm. I don't really like states as political forms, but they're, <laughs> they're there. And, you know, so, mm-hmm. but, so I don't think, but I think Malcolm X um, really, um, amongst many others, the Black Panthers and, and you know, um, Huey Newton and, and so forth, really did take up that mantle of, of also looking beyond the state. Um, and refusing in some ways to play the game that the white um, uh, um, establishment had tried to lay out about how you do, pla- you know, and I think that gets at one of the themes like this is, you know, this, okay, this is how you do ba- black politics. And, and this is, and I think pe- thinkers like Malcolm X and also certainly Dr. King, um, not to exclude him from that, but in, in a different way, Malcolm X really um, pushed back against that in, in a way that was, I think one of the things that I, I've always found that why Malcolm X was, was probably so, um, um, compelling or evidence of how compelling and how genuinely, um, impactful his message was, was just how much he was feared within the FBI, within the U S surveillance state, um, you know, where they had people tailing him because they realized that that message was, um, extremely dangerous to their kind of hold on 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 a, a certain version of reality, um, and that really came out in, in that in that last one line, you know, the looking beyond the state. Um, so, uh, I I you know I could go on with superlatives um, <laughs> about your book, but I mean in 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 a real way, I, I you know to anyone um, to anyone and everyone, <laughs> I shouldn't say <laughs> you know, to anyone listening, <laughs> call into the <laughs> into the uh, into the shadows, <laughs> um, but to everyone listening, um, please do pick up a copy. And uh, I I think you know it, it said it, it speaks to um, um, you know there's history, there's political theory. It speaks to contemporary affairs um, in very um, meaningful ways and in ways that, um, you know, I would, I would probably likely say, at least for me, and I'm sure most people we haven't thought of before. Um, and, and it's a, cha- it's a book that challenges us to think about what, you know, what it means to be a, a citizen in a democracy, which is an age old question. And one that we are certainly in the United States and in many other places still trying to answer. So, um, Dr. Juliet Hooker, thank you so much um, for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate um, taking time to speak with us. No, thank you for having me. It's been a, a lovely conversation. I've enjoyed um, discussing Black Grief Fight Grievance with you. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs>